Well, please turn in God's Word to the book of Romans and chapter 3. Romans, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1. We're going to read just three verses from Romans 1, and then we're going to turn to chapter 3. It's on page 1131, if you're using the church Bible. Romans chapter 1, and we read verses 16 to 18. Verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1 are really the text that Paul is going to expound, that he's going to preach on in the rest of the whole letter. And uh, we're going to come back to one particular part of it uh, in chapter 3. But let's read, first of all, from verse 16 of Romans 1. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then we go forwards to chapter 3 and verse 9. In the intervening chapters, Paul has made the case that every person without exception, every kind of person, religious or irreligious, uh, theist or atheist, Jew or Greek, every person in the world Uh, is unrighteous. And then uh, he comes to this conclusion in Romans 3 verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We end our reading there at the close of verse 26. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please turn again in God's Word to Romans chapter 3, to those verses that we read from just uh, a few moments ago. And we're going to be looking this morning particularly at verses 21 to 24, uh, perhaps uh, particularly verses 24, uh, I'm sorry, 21 to 26, but especially 24 and 25. Last week at our pre-communion service, we saw how Jesus Christ came to save us by keeping the law perfectly in our place. He did what we cannot do. He lived the life that we cannot live. He kept every single one of the Ten Commandments in all of their depth and in all of their breadth. But there is a problem that still remains. And that is that we have broken the law. And we haven't just broken the law once or twice, occasionally from time to time, but we have all already broken the law countless millions of times. Romans 3 verse 20 sums up Paul's argument from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 19. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No one will ever be righteous by keeping the law. And our study of the commandments so far have reminded us of that, <clears throat> if we need to be reminded, haven't they? Uh, our study of the first seven commandments have convicted us. We have broken every single one of them. We have done the things that they forbid, and we have failed to do the things that they require. We have broken the law, and that means that we are guilty in the sight of God. The law is a little bit like a CT scan of someone whose body is riddled with cancer. It exposes, the law exposes all our horrible sin and failure. The idea that we could be declared innocent by keeping the law is like taking that scan, that CT scan, to an army recruitment officer and hoping that you would be declared fit to serve. There's no chance whatsoever 
of that happening. You're not going to pass at all. Not when that is what you're like on the inside. We have broken the law. And worse than that, of course, there is a penalty for breaking God's law. And that penalty is death. In fact, it's worse than death, isn't it? It is eternal death in hell. We have sinned, and the sins that we have committed need to be punished. They're like the blood of Abel crying out to God for vengeance from the ground. And God, because he is a just God, a holy God, God can't ignore those sins. He can't sweep them under the carpet. He can't pretend that they didn't happen. He can't pretend that they don't matter because they do matter. We have all broken God's law many, many times, and justice must be satisfied. Sin must be punished. Every sin must be punished. Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 10, quoting from the Old Testament, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Because we have broken the law, because we have sinned, we're cursed. We're under the curse of the law. Our situation seems hopeless. And that's exactly the point at which Paul here introduces two words that give inexpressible hope and joy and comfort. Those two words at the beginning of Romans 3 verse 21. But now, but now, things looked hopeless. Things were hopeless, but now something is different. Something has changed. Up to this point in Romans, we have seen what man has done, left to himself. From now on in Romans, we're going to see what God has done in grace. Leon Morris, uh, one commentator on the book of Romans, he says of these verses that this is possibly the most important paragraph ever written. We need a Savior, a Savior who will rescue us from the law's penalties as well as from the law's demands. We saw last week that Jesus has saved us from the law's demands. He's done positively everything that the law says ought to be done. But we need a Savior who can do more than that. We need a Savior who will save us from the law's penalties as well as its demands. And that is just what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. He has assumed liability for our sins. He has paid the penalty all the penalty that was due to us. A few weeks ago, I had to fill in a guarantor form uh, for Erin for her house next year that she's going to be living in. And uh, it's quite a frightening letter, uh, a legal binding letter. 
I do hereby assign guarantee to you the punctual payment of the said rent payable for the tenant and also for all losses due to damage by the tenant by negligence or otherwise. If Erin doesn't pay, I have to pay. Whatever she breaks, I have to pay for. If she can't, now she will. (laughs) She has more money than I do. But anyway, I'm the guarantor and I have to stand over that. And that is what Jesus has done for us. He has become our guarantor. He says to God the Father, I will pay all the costs and all the damages incurred by the sins of my people who trust in me. He doesn't just meet the demands of the law. He pays its penalties as well. And here in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, we have three pictures of how Jesus saves us by taking the penalty for our sins. Three pictures of how Jesus takes the penalty. And we're going to look at the first two now, and then we'll look at the third at the table. So first of all, the first picture is justification. Justification. And this picture takes us into the courtroom. It is the picture of the courtroom. Our problem, as we've seen, is that our sins make us guilty in the courtroom of heaven. And we have no defense whatsoever to plead. There are no mitigating circumstances. We've broken God's law. And even if we had only broken God's law in one or two little places, insignificant places, if we can describe any part of God's law like that, even if we had only broken God's law in one or two places, we would still be guilty. We would still have to go to hell forever. James 2 verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. And of course, all of us have failed, not just in one point of the law, but in countless times, in countless ways. I wonder, have you ever been caught red-handed doing something wrong? Perhaps that's something that we're... uh, It tends to happen more when we're children than when we're adults. Perhaps, uh, well, hopefully we get better at self-control as we get older, but perhaps it's that we get better at hiding our sins, covering our tracks as adults. Uh, Maybe you boys and girls know very well what it's like to be caught doing something wrong. You're in the middle of something uh, that you shouldn't be doing, and mommy or daddy comes in, and you are caught red-handed. Uh, You've been found out, and there is no way to argue or to excuse it. But maybe we've all had that experience, even as adults. Maybe you've been caught in a lie. Maybe you've been caught speeding by a police officer. And there's that horrible, cold rush of dread and fear as you realize you're guilty. And you've been exposed. And there is no excuse And there is no way out. 
You remember that feeling? You know that feeling? Can you imagine taking that feeling and multiplying it billions and billions of times? That's what it's going to be like on the day of judgment in the courtroom of the holy God as suddenly all our sins in all their ugliness are exposed for all to see. Our guilt is laid bare. But the good news of the gospel is that in the courtroom of heaven, Christians are justified. God justifies Christians. That means God declares the Christian not guilty. The moment that you become a Christian, you are pronounced innocent by God. Now, this is more than being pardoned. A pardoned criminal is still a criminal. He did the crime, and his record will always show that he did the crime. It's just that he's not being punished for the crime that he committed. But to be justified is more than that. To be justified is to be declared innocent. It is to be treated by God as righteous, as if you'd never committed a single sin. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared not guilty in the courtroom of heaven by the judge of all the earth. And how does that happen? How can that be possible? Well, it tells us later on in Romans 5 verse 9, we have now been justified by his blood, by Christ's blood, Christ's death on our behalf. That's the reason why we can be declared righteous, because he is our substitute. He stands in our place. He takes our guilty record, and we take his perfect record. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ takes our sin. Christ takes our guilt. Christ is punished for our guilt. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's how he does it. He takes our guilt. He takes our punishment. He pays the penalty that we ought to pay through an eternity in hell. And so justice is satisfied. Every single one, every last one of your sins and mine are punished. They are dealt with because God punished Christ for them at the cross instead of you. And Jesus is not some random third party who's dragged in off the street and made to pay the punishment. No, he is the second person of the Godhead. He is the Son of God. This is the judge taking the punishment, his own punishment, himself. It's as if the judge, having pronounced the verdict of guilty, takes off his wig and comes out of the uh, judge's seat and comes round into the dock 
and takes the place of the prisoner and then pays the price, pays the penalty, takes the punishment that was due to the prisoner. That's what justification is. It's being declared not guilty in the courtroom of heaven. And this declaration of innocence is made the very moment that you become a Christian. All the guilt of all your sins, past and present and future, are all transferred to Christ and dealt with at the cross. And from that moment on to all eternity, you are not guilty. You are not guilty. The verdict of the day of judgment has already been passed for you if you're a Christian. You're still going to sin. You sin every day. Of course you do. As long as you're alive, you're going to sin. But the guilt of all of those sins has been atoned for at the cross. And you are not guilty in the sight of God. You have been declared innocent. You have been justified in the courtroom of heaven. I remember Pastor Donnelly saying more than once that 90%, he reckoned, of his pastoral problems could be solved immediately if people just understood, really understood, justification. So many Christians live as though justification hasn't really happened or that it hasn't happened in the way that the Bible says that it has happened. So many Christians live as though Jesus saves them from their past sins when they become Christians. And then from that moment on, when you become a Christian, it's your job to try and live a really good life in order to stay saved. Jesus has saved you by the cross. You become a Christian and then it's your job to keep yourself saved to stay saved, as though Jesus has wiped the slate clean when you become a Christian, but it's your job from then on out to keep the slate clean. And that's not justification. The slate has been smashed to pieces. The slate has been thrown away. It's been thrown into the depths of the sea, to use that picture that Micah uses uh, that we thought about at the beginning of the service. All our sins have been atoned for. They've all been forgiven. You have been declared innocent by God for all time. Now, yes, we still sin as Christians. And we need to repent of those sins. And we need to believe that those sins have all been forgiven in Christ. You have been justified for Christ's sake. You are innocent. You will always be innocent because you have been justified by the blood of Christ. You are not guilty. You will never be guilty in the courtroom of heaven. It is always Christ who justifies us to the very last moment of life on earth. You're always and only innocent because of what he has done. It's never because of what you have done. You cannot justify yourself. You've never justified yourself. You never will justify yourself. It is only Christ who justifies. 
The great theologian B.B. Warfield puts it like this. He says, there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. In other words, no matter how much you grow as a Christian, no matter how godly a Christian you become, you never ever reach the point where your obedience and your faithfulness and your godliness makes you right with God. You are only ever accepted by God because of Jesus Christ. And when you're feeling guilty and ashamed because of all your sins and all your failures, and when you feel like you're such a miserable Christian, you've got to take your eyes off yourself. You've got, you've got to stop being preoccupied and even obsessed in some cases with yourself and with your own performance. And you've got to look at Christ because it is by His blood that you're justified, not by your performance. Of course you're weak. Of course you're an inconsistent failure as a Christian. We all of us are. But Christ has paid for all of that failure. He's covered it all over by his blood. The gospel produces what John Piper calls gutsy guilt. I'm not sure if I really like that term, but I really like what he says about it. He says Christians mustn't let Satan use guilt to destroy your service for God. You need to have the guts to counter his accusations with faith in the justifying work of Christ. In other words, the devil comes and says to you, how can you serve God after all that you've done? Look at your life. Look at the kind of Christian you are. You're a mess. You're a shambles. You're rubbish. How can you honestly think that you can serve God? And of course, in and of ourselves, we have nothing to say. Because he's right. It's true. We're not worthy to serve. But when we understand and when we believe in justification through Christ, here's what we say to the devil. We say, yes, I am guilty. I am more guilty than I even realize. I have done what you're accusing me of doing. But I'm justified. Jesus Christ has taken my record of my sin and he has nailed it to the cross. It's forgiven. It's gone. So get out of my way. I'm off to serve God and his people in the freedom of the gospel. That is the gospel way of dealing with guilt. It drives us to Christ and to the cross in repentance and faith. And whenever we sin, 
in big ways or in small ways, that's what we need to do. We repent and we believe the gospel. We trust that Jesus Christ has justified us by his blood and that we are not guilty in the courtroom of heaven. Justification, that's our first picture. And then the second picture, also found in verse 24, is the picture of redemption. Redemption. Uh, Verse 24 says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this second picture takes us to the slave market. Justification is the picture of the courtroom. Redemption is the picture of the slave market. The word redeem means to buy something back at a price. Now, from our perspective, our rescue is free. Salvation is completely free. It costs us nothing. We contribute nothing at all to our salvation. But it is not free from God's perspective. There is a heavy, heavy price for God to pay. Salvation comes at an immense cost to God. And what is that price? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. He says, you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We are not redeemed with money. We're not redeemed with any material thing. The only thing that can redeem us is the precious blood of Christ. The picture of redemption in the Old Testament especially was to do with releasing prisoners of war or slaves. And that's the picture here in the New Testament. The death of Jesus redeems us from all that held us in captivity. You see, our sin makes us slaves. We don't believe that, of course, before we're converted. We don't believe that we're slaves. We believe the devil's lie, that sin makes us free. That's the lie that he told Adam and Eve in the beginning, isn't it? If you submit to God, if you obey him, if you follow his law, that's not freedom. Freedom is doing whatever you want to do irrespective of what God says. That's what the devil tells us. But the truth is that sin enslaves us. It binds us. That's what Adam and Eve discovered, isn't it? As soon as they ate the forbidden fruit. Unbelievers are slaves to sin. They can't not sin. They're in bondage to sin. Before we, we become Christians, even our righteousness is like filthy rags. Even the very best acts that we do are polluted by sin because we're not doing them for God's glory. Everything we touch turns to dust. It's like the opposite, a horrible, hellish opposite of King Midas. You remember how King Midas, everything he touched, turned to gold. This precious, beautiful, dazzling gold. 
But if we're not Christians, everything we touch turns to dust because we are slaves to sin. We have no freedom to go where we want. Sin imprisons us. It binds our habits and our behavior and our thoughts. We can't stop doing them. We can't stop thinking them. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ's death redeems us from this slavery. We're ransomed. He's paid the price to release us, the price of his own blood. I want to say to you, if you're not a Christian this morning, you may think that you're free, but you're not. You may think that because you're not tied down to a list of religious rules and regulations, that means that you're free. But you're not free. You're a slave. You're a slave to sin. And the only way to be truly free is to live the way our Creator intends us to live, which is in fellowship with Him. But if you're a Christian today, listen to this. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's not something that's going to happen in the future. That one day when you get to heaven, then you'll be redeemed. Then you'll no longer be a slave. No, this has already happened. And I wonder, do you realize that? Do you believe that? It's true. You are not a slave anymore. And that means that because you're a Christian, you don't have to obey the old master of sin any longer. Someone who's not a Christian, they can't not sin. They have no choice. They're bound to sin. But if you're a Christian, you're free to obey the Lord. And maybe we need to be reminded of that. I'm sure we need to be reminded of that because sometimes it's hard to believe, isn't it? There are times when temptation is very fierce and very strong and the world outside us and the devil outside us and the flesh inside us, they're all working together. They're conspiring together to lure us and tempt us into doing wrong. And as that temptation comes, perhaps those old cravings and those old memories, those distorted memories of just the pleasures of sin, they come flooding back and you feel helpless and you feel like you're a slave again. And you are not a slave and you must not think that you're a slave. You must believe. You've got to say to yourself, I have been redeemed. No matter how it seems, no matter what the devil tells me, no matter how I feel, exercise faith. I believe I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ from slavery to sin. I don't have to obey this sinful temptation. I don't have to give in. The devil's telling me that I can't resist. My flesh is crying out for me to give in. But I can resist because I'm not a slave anymore. I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Don't think like a slave. Don't act like a slave. Jesus Christ has paid the price of his own blood. This is why he went to the cross to free you so that you don't have to sin. 
So don't act like a slave when you've been redeemed. Justification and redemption. Jesus Christ dies the death that we deserve. He assumes liability for all the consequences of our sins. And by doing so, he justifies us and he redeems us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Amen. Well, this passage in Romans 3 that we're looking at makes it very clear, doesn't it, that there are only two sorts of people in the world. Everyone, without exception, is a sinner. Uh, That's clear from verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is under the wrath of God and deserves to go to hell forever. But some of these sinners have put their faith in Jesus Christ and they have been ransomed. Uh, They have been justified by the ransom price that he has paid. And so there are two kinds of sinner in the world. Everyone is a sinner, but there are two kinds of sinner. There are justified sinners and there are unjustified sinners. There are those who have been declared innocent by God, and there are those who are still guilty before God. And it's so important that you understand which category you belong to as you come to the Lord's table. Because only those who have been justified by faith in Christ can come to the Lord's table. If you're not a Christian today, then you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you. And that means that you can't come to the Lord's table. You have no righteousness from God. You're still guilty in His sight. The ransom price hasn't been paid for you yet. You're still a slave to sin. And for you to come to the Lord's table in your current state, as you presently are, would be to pile up even greater judgment upon yourself. It would be dishonest. It would be hypocritical. It would be pretending something about yourself that simply isn't true. But if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can come, and you should come. And Jesus himself commands you to come. You feel unworthy. And that's good. And that's right. Because in and of yourself, you are unworthy. We're none of us worthy to sit at the Lord's table. But because of Christ, because of what He has done for us at the cross, we are declared worthy by the Lord. We are treated as worthy by God. In and of ourselves, we're not righteous, but the righteousness of God has been given to us. 
Maybe some of you are hesitant to come to the Lord's table. I know that that is a real struggle for some of you in particular every time we have communion. And you're very conscious, you're painfully aware of your sin. But if you are a Christian, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are clothed today in the righteousness of God Himself. So how could you possibly be disqualified? How could you possibly be turned away? God Himself, the judge of all the earth, has pronounced you not guilty in the courtroom of heaven. Is any of us going to dare to contradict his verdict? Paul says later in Romans, in Romans 8, 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. And that includes you, however unworthy and weak and sinful and disobedient you feel. If you have trusted Christ, then there is no one in all the universe who can bring any charge against you. You've been justified, and you've been redeemed. The price has been fully paid for your release. The blood of God's Son has been poured out so that you can be forgiven so that you can be declared innocent. Do you really think that that's not enough? Do you really think that you need to or you could top up the blood of Jesus Christ with something of your own before you come to the Lord's table? What, what do you think that you could possibly do, that you could possibly add to the blood of Christ, to what He has done for you that would make you more acceptable in God's sight. A few extra minutes of prayer, a few extra hours of Bible reading, a few more ounces of obedience and self-denial. It's ludicrous, isn't it? It's, it's utterly ridiculous when you spell it out like that. If you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, then everything has been done for you that needs to be done or that can be done. And all that remains is for you and for me to respond by receiving, thankfully, gladly, what God has provided for us in Christ. How can I repay the Lord for all His goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Please turn again to Romans chapter 3, and in particular now to verse 25, where we have the third picture that Paul gives us of what the death of Christ in our place accomplishes. It justifies us, it redeems us, and now we see that it propitiates God's wrath. The third picture is the picture of the execution chamber. We've been to the courtroom, we've been to the slave market, and now we come to the execution chamber. Uh, we're meant to, to imagine, uh, as we think about this, 
word propitiation in verse 25, a guilty man strapped to a table about to be given a lethal injection because he's committed a crime that has attracted the wrath of the state and he must be punished. Justice demands it. It's not enough that he be pronounced guilty. There are consequences, fatal consequences, that inevitably follow. Romans 3 verse 25 describes Jesus as a propitiation. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, this is an unusual word. We don't use propitiation much in casual conversation. But actually, this ought to be one of the most precious words in a Christian's vocabulary. Because to propitiate means to turn aside wrath, to turn away wrath, to make someone propitious, to make someone well disposed towards us through sacrifice. Now, the word may not be well known, but the concept is very familiar. Uh, in the past, that picture of the child giving the apple to the teacher to uh, turn aside the teacher's anger because he was late for school. Maybe it's not much of a sacrifice, you would say, just an apple, but then it's not much of a sin, and so there isn't much in the way of wrath. It's a trite example, isn't it? But what does it mean when we think about it in terms of salvation? Well, God's wrath is upon us because of our sin. His settled, perfectly proportioned, consistent response to evil. God is angry with us because we have sinned, and therefore He needs to be propitiated. His wrath needs to be diverted. It needs to be turned aside through sacrifice. And that's what the death of Jesus Christ is. It is a propitiation for our sins. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, when the Bible speaks about propitiating God, he's, it's not talking about a group of ignorant worshipers who are trying to appease the unpredictable fury of a cruel man-made God through invented rituals and sacrifices. That, that is the pagan notion of propitiation. That's not at all what the Bible is describing. God himself in the Bible is the one who makes this provision to deal with his own wrath. God put forward the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is his own beloved son. Again, God himself does all that is needed to deal with his wrath. What was it that happened? The Son became our substitute at the cross. Our sins are put to his account, and so that means that he is guilty. He's not guilty of his own sins, because he doesn't have any, but he is guilty of our sins. 
And that means that he has to pay the penalty. He bears the punishment for the sins that he is carrying. You imagine a little radio transmitter that sends out a signal to guide a missile that comes down screaming out of the sky onto its target. The missile locks on to that signal and follows it to wherever that radio transmitter is. And our sins are a little bit like that radio transmitter, crying out for punishment, attracting the missiles of the holy wrath of God to come raining down upon them. And there's nowhere in the universe that is out of range. There's nowhere in the universe that we can go to hide because, of course, God is everywhere. But at the cross, Jesus takes that transmitter to himself, and he runs away with it so that the missiles lock on to him, and they target him, and they destroy him instead of us. That's what was going on at the cross. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the missiles of God's infinite wrath locked on to Jesus at the cross and rained down upon him during those three hours of darkness. God poured out on Jesus, his Son, every last drop of his undiluted wrath. He punished Jesus. He punished his Son as if Jesus had told the lies that you and I have told. He punished Jesus as if Jesus had lusted and committed adultery and murdered, as if Jesus had broken the Sabbath day and blasphemed the name of God. He took the place of sinners. He suffered your hell and my hell in those hours on the cross. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So that not one single ounce, not one drop of God's wrath falls upon you. Doesn't touch you. Doesn't graze you in the slightest. It doesn't come anywhere near you. Because Christ has propitiated God's wrath. He's turned it aside. He's absorbed it into himself so that it doesn't come to us. So if you're a Christian, every last drop of God's wrath against you is spent. There's nothing left. God himself has offered his son as a propitiation by his blood. So if you're a Christian, if you've asked Christ to save you, you cannot go to hell. It would be unjust for God to send you to hell. It would be unjust for him to punish you for sins that have already been punished in Christ. There is no wrath. There is no such place as purgatory. If you're a Christian, God is propitious towards you. He is able to bless you 
and favor you. There is no anger or punishment in store because Jesus Christ was crushed in your place for your iniquities. He was pierced for your transgressions. And we have that picture here in these elements at the table. His body and his blood given for us. And because he gave himself, he's able to welcome us as his friends, not as his enemies, to sit with him, to eat and to drink with him at his table. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank and we praise you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that not only have we heard of his saving work in your word read and preached, but we have seen it uh, visually symbolized to us in this bread and in this wine, this bread broken and this wine poured out. We thank you again for all that he has done for us. Thank you that his work for us is finished and completed, that there is nothing more that needs to be added to it, nothing that can be added to it by us. Help us, we pray, to understand the salvation that we have in Christ more clearly. Help us to believe it. Help us to put our trust in it. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we will live as those who have been justified and redeemed, and whom God himself has uh, turned his wrath away from. Father, we thank you for all that Jesus has done for us, and we thank you for all that he continues to do now, seated at your right hand in glory, that he prays for us so that he may save us to the uttermost. We thank you that he is praying for us even now as we sit at the table with him. We thank you for the blessings that we've received already. We thank you for the blessings that will come to us as a result of what we have done here today. And we pray that you will continue to be near us as we uh, keep this day holy, that we would call it a delight and your holy day honorable. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.